Amen. Amen. I want to talk to you a little bit about um, what happens when you must speak truth to the powers that be. Uh, one of the popular themes in our culture is speaking truth to power. You hear it uh, referenced and referred to all the time. Um, and oftentimes, you know, the, the question becomes, what truth do you speak to power? I mean, you, you have a lot of people that speak truth to power, and sometimes they can speak all sorts of things. But the question is, what is truth, right? Are you actually, when you speak, are you speaking truth? Or are you just speaking your truth? Which your truth doesn't necessarily mean it's the truth, right? And so, and so sometimes it, it, it helps to actually not just speak, but it actually helps to know what the truth is that you're speaking. And then it helps to have the courage and the confidence to actually speak that truth in power or speak that truth to power. One gentleman that did such thing was, was a, a gentleman by the name of Frederick Douglass. Uh, Frederick Douglass, as, as you know, is a uh, very prominent figure in, um, in, in American history. Uh, Frederick Douglass spoke boldly um, and, and, and courageously against the uh, slaveholding traditions of the day. Um, in which he lived and in which he existed. But he also spoke to the hypocrisy of Christianity in the midst of that slaveholding tradition or the, or the hypocrisy of an American Christianity, which was, which allowed that slaveholding tradition to exist under, un, un, undeterred or, or unobstructed. And he spoke boldly to it. And he spoke boldly to it in the oddest places, right? He didn't speak boldly to it in corners. When opportunities, when opportunities arose where he had an audience that was, that was influential and had the ability to do something about that particular hypocrisy, he spoke directly to that audience about it. He spoke truth to power. One of the things that Frederick Douglass is famous for having spoke was this uh, particular quote about, about, about the hypocrisy of, of American Christianity in that day. And I'll read that. It reads, I therefore hate the corrupt slaveholding, women whipping, cradle plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of the land. He had said before that that he loves the Christianity of Jesus and therefore he hates the Christianity that was being presented to him. He said, I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. Never was there a clearer case of stealing the livery of the court of heaven to serve the devil in. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show together with, with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have men stealers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, and cradle plunderers for church members. The man who wields the blood clotted cow skin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The slave auctioners bail and the church-going bail chime in with each other. And the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of his pious master. Revivals of religion and revivals in the slave, slave trade go hand in hand together. The slave prison and the church stand near each other. The clanking of fetters and the rattling of chains in the prison. And the pious psalm and solemn prayer in the church may be heard at the same time. The dealers in the bodies of men erect their stand in the presence of the pulpit, and they mutually help each other. The dealer gives his blood-stained gold to support the pulpit, and the pulpit in return covers his infernal business with the dress of Christianity. Here we have religion and robbery, the allies of each other. 
devils dressed in angels' robes, and hell presenting the semblance of paradise. That is speaking truth to power. That's a hard truth, but it's nevertheless speaking a hard truth to people that sometimes need to hear it. And as we look to Paul, we see an example of Paul speaking truth to power. But again, not just his truth, but the truth. He's given an opportunity to speak as, as he is defending himself in the, midst of, uh, in the midst of accusations being made against him as to whether or not he is stirring up trouble. When we last left Paul, uh, um, over the last couple of weeks, we've been walking through this with Paul. And when we last left Paul, he had managed by the grace of God to successfully avoid a threat made against him by a large group of conspirators in Jerusalem. Forty plus men had said, we will not eat and we will not drink until we see Paul killed and murdered and see an end put to this Christian movement. Paul had also gone before Felix, the governor, and, and defended himself against all the false accusations being made against him by the chief priests and by the influential folks in the community. And these false accusations claimed that Paul was defiling the temple, that Paul was, was uh, breaking Jewish laws, that Paul was stirring up trouble and possibly leaving room for riots to happen in their city. But Paul boldly and Paul clearly made his case to the governor, Felix, at that time. And he avoided the punishment of death, but he remained in lockdown while they tried to determine how to resolve this whole mess that had been created. And Paul remained in lockdown through, uh, through the completion of Felix's rule for two years exactly. So when we get to chapter 25, Paul has been in prison imprisoned for two years and the Roman officials still have nothing concrete to, to, to charge him with. They have the Jewish accusations that says he's guilty, but, but even these Jewish leaders have, in the, and these priests have brought nothing to them to actually charge this man with and certainly nothing to say he deserves to die. When you look at chapter 24, verses 22 and verses 23, we know he is being treated well and his friends are being allowed to visit him. But we are still talking about two years with no credible charge against the man. I mean, it's great to have rights in prison, but you're still in prison, so it doesn't make it that much better. And you're still in prison for doing nothing, which is Paul's situation in Paul's case. And yet Paul remains, even in the midst of all of this, Paul remains steadfast in his commitment every step of the way to make Jesus known. He has declared to the masses in Jerusalem. He has declared or he has proclaimed to the Sanhedrin council. He has routinely preached the gospel to the governor Felix. And according to chapter 25, verse 24, the gospel, this gospel that Paul is preaching includes righteousness self-control, and the coming judgment to those who ignore the first two. After some days, for example, in, in chapter 24, verse of chapter 25, verse 24 and 25, it says, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. He heard him speak in faith in Christ Jesus. What did he hear Paul say? I said chapter 25, I'm sorry, chapter 24. What did he hear Paul say? 
he heard Paul reason about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. And Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. And when I get the opportunity, I will summon you. That's fascinating when you think about it. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, Paul ties to faith in Jesus Christ. Righteousness is a, is a, is a Greek word called the kaiosune. And what's interesting about the kaiosune is the kaiosune is not just simply about righteousness in the sense that you and I see righteousness. It actually is um, translated in most early forms as justice. And even when you look at it, several parts of scripture, you see the word justice, not righteousness. Now, why is that important? Because sometimes when you and I think about righteousness, we think about the things that are inside of us. Righteousness means stop cussing. Righteousness means stop, you know, drinking too much. Righteousness means stop smoking. Righteousness means, you know, don't do this, don't do that. But righteousness is not just about the things that happen on the inside of you. Righteousness is just as meaning about meaning the things that you are doing to others. As a matter of fact, one of the things that Jesus says is he says, don't let your acts of righteousness, don't practice your acts of righteousness for others to see. And then he commit, then he moves from saying that to saying what? When you give alms. In other words, when you give to the poor. He talks about not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What is he doing? He's connecting acts of righteousness to what? To acts of justice. How you treat one another is what righteousness is, not just how you are doing internally as a person. Does that make sense? Now, self-control is more about what you're doing as a person internally. Self-control is temperance. Self-control is how you control your anger. Self-control is how you control your lust. Self-control is how you control your greed. Self-control is how you control the internal appetite. But righteousness is about how we treat others. So you have righteousness, you have self-control, and then you have the coming judgment, meaning that faith in Jesus Christ is all about those things. That one cannot have faith without practicing righteousness. One cannot have faith without practicing self-control. Does that make sense? And it drew Felix to fear. Why? Well, probably because Felix didn't have a whole lot of self-right or had a whole lot of righteousness and Felix probably didn't have a whole lot of self-control. And Felix certainly had no faith in Jesus Christ. And so hearing about the coming judgment for those who refuse to trust Jesus Christ and refuse to live a life of repentance that reflects itself in righteousness and in self-control, he said, hey, get away from me and we'll, we'll talk, we'll talk later. But Paul was doing what? Speaking truth to power. The conditions won't always be favorable, folks, to call people to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul comes in and out with Felix, speaking truth to power. Coming out of the, coming out of confinement day after day after day. Whenever Felix calls him, he walks out of confinement. He tells Felix about the gospel. He goes back to confinement. Why? Because conditions aren't, aren't always favorable to share the truth of the gospel. But it does not make it any less worthy of sharing and any less necessary and any less important to share. 
If these same certainties that you and I must take into our lives, if it, it, I'm sorry, rather, it is these same certainties that you and I must take into our lives as we seek to make Christ known both in word and deed and both in favorable and unfavorable circumstances. We must take into life the reality that God has saved us, that he is calling us to share his gospel, and that, and that, and that he is certain that Christ, that Paul is certain, and that we must be certain that Christ will be with him until the very end. That's why he goes and shares even when the conditions aren't favorable. Because the gospel is worthy. Because people need saving. And he's called us to reach out. And because he knows that God's going to be with him. And, fo- and folks, we got to go with that same certainty when we go. Whether the conditions are favorable or not. Does that make sense? So he does this for two years. And Felix is eventually removed. And he's replaced by a man by the name of Festus. Festus becomes the governor, and chapter 25 picks up with Festus being the governor. The first thing I want to highlight about chapter 25 is that you should expect, when you speak to power, you should expect political pandering. Not always, but sometimes. See, one of the things that you notice as you get older is that, is that you become more aware of the moment of history in which you're living in as well as the, the, the moments of, histories that, the, of history that preceded you. And you become more and more aware of this reality that nothing is truly new under the sun. And what I mean in reading and what I mean in saying that is that when you read Acts, I am, I'm sometimes amazed at how frequently politics appear and the similarities that politics in Acts the similarities that he carries to the way politics is handled in our day. Nothing is new under the sun. Paul is dealing with the forces of evil manifesting themselves through the vindictive and through the bitter and through the hateful actions of men that say, we will not eat or drink until we see this man die. But Paul is also dealing with the way evil manifests itself in the manipulative, selfish ambition, self-seeking, corrupt, political ways in which evil tends to manifest itself. He's dealing with it in both ways. Because sometimes evil doesn't come with the, with the pitchfork and the horns. Sometimes evil manifests itself in slick suits and ties. I heard one brother say that, I heard one brother say that, politics ain't nothing but crips and bloods with suits. <laughs> that it can be just as corrupt. And just as dirty and just as bad. It can be that. It can be that, folks. Not said it's always that, okay? Please don't go out and tell the mayor, he said you're a crip. <laughs> but it can be that. And Paul is dealing with this. And, 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 and for example, in chapter 24, verse 26 and 27, we see Paul dealing with Felix. And remember, there's a a two-year period in which Felix just keeps inviting them back, and he keeps sharing the gospel with them. And the the scripture says that the only reason Felix is inviting him back is because he's hoping that Paul will give him some money, that Paul will pay him, that he's he's trying to, to get a bribe from Paul to be let free, to be let go. But Paul, every time he goes, he's sharing the gospel. But Felix keeps him there. But here's the interesting thing about him keeping him there. Why does he keep him there? It says he desires to do the Jews a favor. And so he leaves him there in prison. Political pandering. 
Felix passes on justice. Felix passes on righteousness in order to do favors for zealously loud but spiritually deficient religious folk. Isn't that interesting? So, so Paul is left in prison for two years, and, and not because he committed any crimes, but because of political gamesmanship with zealously loud but religiously deficient religious folk. However, the change in leadership from Felix to Festus, you, you would hope that it brings some change in this political gamesmanship, but it does not. In fact, when you look at chapter 25, verses 1 through 6, you see the same thing playing itself out. Those who are accusing Paul are asking for him to be brought down to Caesarea. And and, and Caesarea, they want want him to be brought down from Caesarea to their turf in Jerusalem, but not because they're going to give him a fair trial when he gets to Jerusalem. They want to kill him on the way. It's the same thing that we talked about a few weeks ago with people saying, hey, We got 40 people that's ready to take Paul out and whoever is riding on the carriage that's bringing Paul when he comes, or the chariot that's bringing Paul, the caravan that's bringing Paul when he comes. And so we don't know, maybe it's this same group that two years later, they still have this hunger, this insatiable appetite to see Paul dead. But the leaders and the officials say, hey, can you bring Paul down from Caesarea? And Festus says, "Uh, no, we're not going to do that. But you can come up to Caesarea, and you can speak, make your case. If you've been walking with us through the last couple of sermons, you might remember, again, like I said, that this was the same plan that Lysias had to hear. He was one of the officials. And Paul's nephew said, no, they're trying to plan an attack. Remember that? God was with him throughout the time. And apparently God is with him now. So two years later, he is sitting in front of a new governor, and yet Paul is getting still very much, or Paul is yet still very much on the minds of those in Jerusalem. And so a couple of weeks later, they do come to Caesarea, and they don't have a case. Surprise. Nevertheless, even though it's fairly obvious that they have no case, this is what you hear from Festus. In verse 7, or verse 9, rather, chapter 25, it says this, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Did you hear that? Wishing to do the Jews a favor. Now, one reason Festus makes this recommendation is because he doesn't have a, a lot of experience with handling these cases of Jewish law and customs, and they're saying Paul has done something wrong. He can't see it, so he's like, I don't have any any stake in this, right? That's one reason. But the other reason, and probably the most important to him, is because he's trying to keep the Jews in his favor. He's trying to keep them appeased so that he can keep them at bay. Two different governors, Felix and Festus, both allowing injustices or at least the opportunities for injustice in order to perform political favors for a group with misplaced religious fervor and misplaced religious zeal. See, political pandering that ignores injustice while appeasing the religiously zealous is an old trick 
with keeping power. It's been going on for a long, long time. So Christian, be on the lookout on both sides of the political aisles for attempts to win your allegiance with favors, even if those favors come at the cost of some injustice. Some people in power will grant you seats in order to seal your silence. Some people in power will grant you gifts in order to gain your advocacy. Don't let them. The Christian who has been bought with a price by Christ can't be sold to the highest bidding politicians. The Christian who has been bought by Christ cannot be sold to the highest bidding political parties. When they ask you to take a side, be sure to declare that first and foremost, you're on the Lord's side. For he has granted us the ultimate favor. He has granted us the ultimate gift, which is salvation through the life, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and intercession of, intercession of his son, Jesus Christ. In verse 10, we see Paul refusing to take the bait to go to Jerusalem in order to appease this political favor that Festus is setting up. He says in verse 10 of chapter 25, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you will go. Why is Paul so cool in this moment? a couple of reasons. One is because he understands his standing based on his character. What does Paul argue for? Paul argues for justice. Paul doesn't argue for leniency. Paul doesn't argue for the governor to do something that he should not do. Paul says, do what you should do. And why can he say that? Because he's been walking in character. Do you understand that? He can ask for justice because he's been walking justly. He is not looking to escape punishment. He says, I'm not looking to escape death. If I've done something wrong, then I should be punished for it. But I've done nothing wrong. I've broken the laws. I'm innocent. He says, in fact, you know this. We have this trial and we have these people here accusing me. But you know, that's why you, that's why you, haven't, that's why you haven't charged me yet. Because you know I've done nothing wrong. Paul in this moment shows us that character matters when we are standing up to the powers that be. When we are standing up to them and laying claim and, and crying out for justice, even if that justice is our own, character matters when you speak truth to power. Paul reminds us what Peter tells us in, in, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter tells us, hey, don't, uh, it's okay to suffer for Christ's sake. But don't suffer for being, don't suffer for being an evildoer. Don't suffer for being a murderer. Don't suffer for being a thief. Well, sometimes, sometimes we cry out for justice when, when, when we are acting immorally. And then we get the nerve, right? To say, well, they shouldn't have did that. They shouldn't have punished me that hard. It's like, be quiet. You know what I mean? You, if you did it, you did it. Just accept it. Embrace it. Whatever comes. 
Have you ever done that, right? Not, I'm not saying in the court. Sometimes you do that work. Showing up late, leaving early. Boss say something to you, why are you always talking to me? Well, because you're showing up late, leaving early. You're acting immorally, but somehow or another you're crying out for justice. Do what you're supposed to do. Wife getting on your case, haven't washed the dishes or haven't cleaned the house or haven't put doorknobs on doors. Wife says something to you about it. Man, she always riding me because she asked you to put the doorknobs on three months ago, six months ago, and you told her that you were going to do it tomorrow, and here we are. Don't complain. Don't cry out about injustice. Embrace it. I'm embracing it right now. (laughs) Paul also understands his standing based on calling. Not just his standing based on his character, but his standing based on calling. You see, as we discussed last week, Paul's entire approach to all of these trials is shaped by this enduring promise he has received from God back in chapter 23, verse 11, and that was this. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul knows that he is called to go to Rome. And so he's cool. He stands, he's collected, he's calm. He knows what God has called him to do. He knows that nothing will ultimately stand in the way of what God has called him to to do. God says, you must testify in Rome. And so he will. See, folks, it's important to speak with character and clarity to the powers that be, but it's also important to know that the one you represent is more powerful and more glorious than the powers that be. And so where you will be, where he has called you, rather, is where you will be. Speak truth. Not in fear of those that have no power over you. Speak truth because you know that where he called you to be is where you will be. Saints, our actions should be shaped far more by the Lord's words and less more by the king's and governor's promises or even the enemies and adversaries lies in our world. So Paul is looking to get to Rome, and Festus is now looking to get him there, but while they await their appeal to be granted by Caesar, Festus receives a visit from a man. And he receives a visit from a woman. And they're far more connected to Jewish affairs than he is. This man and this woman is Agrippa, King Herod Agrippa II, and his sister Bernice. And again, Paul does not waste an opportunity to do what? To share the gospel and share the truth with power. According to historians, King Agrippa, King Herod Agrippa II, was the eldest of four children. He was the only son. Now, you may recall King Herod Agrippa I. We read about him in Acts chapter 12. He was the one that got all dressed up and came out really arrogant and pompous, and and then God, uh, through an angel, struck him dead. Or he did refuse to give the Lord glory. Well, when he is stricken dead or struck dead, Caesar appoints his son to rule in his stead, King Herod Agrippa II. Now, now Caesar appoints him to a portion of his father's rule because the son is only 17 when he steps into rule. 
And Caesar begins to grant more and more rule to his son over time. But he has no power over what's happening in this particular situation with Paul. He does not rule over the matters in Judea. So he has no power at the moment. But Festus wants to hear from Agrippa. Why? Because Agrippa has familiarity with Jewish affairs. And Festus has no familiarity with Jewish affairs. So he, so he sees and hears all these people complaining about Paul deserving death. And he can see no reason why Paul deserves death. So he says, hey, let me, let me take an opportunity. You're here. You came to see me and to welcome me in my new position. Let me ask you a few questions about this guy by the name of Paul. And he begins to share the story about Paul with Agrippa. And when he shares the story about Paul with Agrippa, even though Agrippa has no authority, he says, man, I would like to hear more about this. Can you bring this Paul before me? So he can tell me his story and he can share his defense. And so Agrippa and Bernice, his sister, which many people, many, uh, many people at that particular time actually suspected that Bernice and Agrippa were in relationship together, which is obviously odd, but not that odd in that time. So they considered them to be in some, you know, immoral affair. And that's why she was always there and always present with him. But nevertheless, in this moment, Agrippa and Bernice come to Caesarea to see Festus, and then Festus tells them about Paul, and they say, well, we want to talk to Paul, and so he brings Paul. And in that moment, they come out with all the pomp and the pizzazz that you would expect from a king, and he has all of his entourage with him with military, uh, military and influential people. And that's when we get to chapter 26. And that's when... Paul begins to make his defense. Now, here's what happens. Paul extends respect first in his defense. He does not try to be disrespectful because when you talk to power, it doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't matter whether the power is people that you agree with, whether the power is people that you uh, believe to be immoral. You still offer respect to that power. Does that make sense? And so Paul says in verse 2, I consider myself fortunate um, that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And then Paul begins to offer his defense. And how does Paul offer a defense? The same way he has been offering it. We talked about when Paul testifies that he does what? He revisits his past. And so he spends a few, a few minutes talking about his past. Part of our gospel witness is to revisit our past, to revisit who we used to be and make a connection with the audience, even if the audience is kings and queens and presidents and governors. So Paul does that. In verse 4, he says, My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. This is what Paul is saying in verses 4 through 10. He is saying, listen, king, I lived as a Pharisee, one of the strictest adherents to the laws and the customs that these men are accusing me of breaking today. And everybody testifying against me knows that. He's basically saying, King, I even was convinced that the people who believed like I do needed to be punished like these folks believe I should be punished today. 
Says, King, I was locking people up before they was coming to kill, uh, coming to kill me. The king, I was signing off on people's deaths before they were putting me in your courts to kill, uh, to, to say I needed to be killed. So I know where they're coming from, is what he's saying. But then the question is, that was then, as for now, Paul says in verse 6 and in verse 8, or 6 through 8, I now stand on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers. Verse 8 says, why is it thought incredible by by any of you that God raises the dead? So here's what Paul is saying now. Paul is saying, this is who I was, but this is who I am now. That now I'm standing on trial because all I'm doing is preaching the hope that our fathers preached. Or that our fathers waited on and believed. And that you, the Jewish people of of this land, are worshiping in anticipation of. I'm just sharing that hope with you. And so the question becomes, what has changed for Paul? Well, what has changed is the same thing he's been sharing all along on the road to Damascus. And he begins to tell him about that experience. That as he's traveling to lock up more Christians and persecute more Christians, that he's coming down, he's coming to Damascus with orders from the officials. And as he's on that road, the Lord meets him on that road. Strikes him down with a bright light. Knocking him, knocking him off of his riding animal and declares, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, Lord, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus Christ. The one you persecute. And then Saul, remember, he is given mission, given assignment. He's told to rise and go into Damascus after being blinded. And in Damascus, he's given the instruction that he will be a missionary for the Savior, Jesus Christ. He shares that story with Agrippa and with Festus and with Bernice and with all those that are gathered. And so Paul is doing what? Even in the moments where he is sitting with kings and and royalty and queens and princesses and, and governors, what is he doing? Making Jesus known. See, he doesn't just simply allow these moments to just be moments to make himself known. He allows even the moments where he is defending his case to make Jesus known. He's leveraging all of these moments to see, he's seizing all of these moments to share the gospel and to make Jesus known. Folks, what moments are you seizing in your life? What conversations are you seizing in your life? What opportunities are you seizing in your life? How many conversations are you going to have with that friend before you invite them to church? How many times are you going to hear about all of the brokenness in their life and them explaining to you all of the things that are going wrong in their life before you share share with them, hey, I have a hope. Then my life isn't perfect either, but I'll tell you what gives me hope. I'll tell you where my hope lies when things are tough. I'll tell you where my confidence is when times are hard, when money is low, when family is not acting right, or when I'm not acting right. I'll tell you where my confidence is. When are you going to seize that opportunity to speak truth? Paul seizes that opportunity even when he's in the presence of kings. 
How much more so should we season when we're in the presence of coworkers? Are you tracking? Lastly, Paul takes this moment to actually go after them. He's actually trying to get these people saved. He's not just defending. He's not just trying to present his position. He's actually trying to get folk saved. And so you hear it in verse 24. It says, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're so smart, you got crazy. You know what I mean? We, we know people like that, right? It's like, man he's, man, he's just too smart. It's mad scientist smart. He's just lost it now. He just knows too much. That's what he's saying about Paul. He's like, man, you just know so much about the scriptures and about the Bible and you, or, or about the Old Testament, about the law. You just know too much. You just, you have gone crazy, Paul. And Paul says, I'm not out of my mind. He says, I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying this. Number one, I'm not crazy. Number two, King Agrippa knows I'm not crazy. King Agrippa's heard about Jesus. King Agrippa's heard about all the commotion of this one who walked the earth that was healing all manner of diseases, all manner of sickness. He knows about the one that was raising Young daughters from the grave. He knows about the one that called out to the grave, said, Lazarus, come forth, and he came out. And he knows that that one was punished and crucified unjustly. He was punished because he declared himself to be the savior of the world, the king of the Jews. He was, de- he was punished because he declared that he, in fact, had come to rescue men from their sin and their death. He's not crazy because he heard that that one resurrected from the grave. And he's not crazy because he knows that they haven't found his body yet. And he's not crazy because he knows that the people that followed him, that scattered when he was being crucified, now are boldly declaring that he is resurrected from the grave. So how is it that cowards have now been, have now been made courageous proclaimers? He's not crazy. So that man knows I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy and that man knows that I'm not crazy. See, underneath that truth, there's two very important points. One, the gospel to the untrained ear sounds crazy. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that that the gospel is foolishness. The cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. But to those 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 that are being saved, it's the power of God. It's the wisdom of God. So the gospel may sound crazy to the untrained ear. Now, folks, the gospel may sound crazy to the untrained ear, but that don't mean you got to be crazy. Sometimes we act crazy, and then we say, well, the the gospel's just crazy. No, no, no. No. The gospel may sound crazy. You don't have to act crazy. It's two different things. As a matter of fact, Paul makes that point, right? He says, listen, I'm rational. I'm speaking rational, true words. They may sound crazy. But here's a rational man that's sharing this truth with you. And then he says, hey, the God, King Agrippa knows it, which means that it's well established. I'm not sharing some truth with you that isn't already been, hasn't already been um, credibly authenticated with people all over this region. And so he then says in verse 27, 
King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And he says, I know that you believe. And then Agrippa said to Paul, in a very short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now hear what Paul says in that moment. He's going, he's going, for the, he's going to seal the deal. King Agrippa, you know what the prophets have said. Do you believe what the prophets have said? King Agrippa, like, man, I'm here to listen to your test. I'm here to listen to you make your defense. Are you trying to get me saved? I haven't even been here. You don't even know me. I've only been here a day. You trying to get me saved now? You trying to get me Jesus? Paul's like, I don't need a lot of time. Short or long, do you want him? See, that's an awareness, right? First of all, that's an awareness in Paul's own sin and how Jesus found him in his own sin. See, sometimes you and I don't want to talk to people because we think they're too far gone. And so, he, you know, you could be in there like, man, King Agrippa, he's sleeping with his sister. Eh, you know, it's probably too far gone to have that conversation right now. Let's, let, let's, let's, let's try to ease into that. Let's see if we can get him to stop sleeping with his sister. And maybe when he, stuck, when he does that, maybe we can start talking to him. Paul's like, ah, there's an awareness of where Paul was. Paul calls himself the chiefest of sinners. Says, hey, I was just as far, I'm, 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 I'm in just as need of saving as he was, as he is now. And sometimes the awareness of where you were helps in your confidence about what the gospel can do. See, some of y'all, here, here's the reality, all right? We're going to be done in a second. Let me share this. Some of y'all think, some of y'all legit think, that you are a lot closer to Jesus before Jesus rescued you than you really were. Some of y'all thought y'all was really, really, really close, and you just needed, you know, Jesus to give you a dollar. You know, your, your, debt, your debt was 100, you had 99, Jesus gave you a dollar, you know. Bruh, you had zero. You weren't close. None of us were close. When Jesus found us, Jesus brought the whole hundred to save you. The whole hundred. You say, well, I didn't curse that much. Jesus brought the whole hundred. Well, I didn't sleep around like so. Jesus brought the whole hundred. Well, I wasn't as mean as Jesus brought the whole Hundred. He needed every single one of those dollars to save you, and those dollars were represented in his blood. He brought the whole hundred to save you. And so you have to start there. See, if you realize that he brought the whole hundred to save you, it's not that far of a reach that he can save anybody else, right? Well, he brought everything to save me. And so, yeah, he can save you too. Because I, I needed everything from him to be saved. And he saved me. And I know he'll give you everything. Everything that's needed. He gave you himself in order that you might be saved. I know that he, I, he did it for me. I know that he'll do it for you. Second, there's the confidence that Paul speaks of. He says, I don't need a lot of time. Why? Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power unto salvation. I don't need a lot of time with you. It's the gospel that has the power. doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where you are in life. doesn't matter whether you're a king or servant. 
Doesn't matter whether you got a lot of a lot of baggage, a little baggage, doesn't matter whether you're self-righteous or humble. I don't need a lot of time with you. It's the gospel that has the power. All I need is to share the gospel with you. God will do the rest. God will do the work. It's the like he is the one who is doing the saving. Some of you come into this place thinking that, well, God, I'm not sure if he can save me. Folks, you have it all wrong. You're thinking about what you bring to the table. You don't bring anything. God brings it. You don't have any power. The gospel has the power. It's what saves you. All that's required of you is to submit and embrace, to trust with faith. Lastly, there's this cherishing of the gospel. Paul says, listen, I don't care how much time I have to share it with you. I just want to share it with you because I want you to be like I am. He said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but everybody in here might become such as I am. He cherishes the gospel just that much that he's not ashamed of. He's not worried about whether or not people will call him crazy for speaking it. He's not worried about whether or not people will call him, you know, uh, uh, too uptight because he walks in it. See, he savors what God has done so much in his life. He cherishes and appreciates so much about what God has done through Christ Jesus and dying for him. And he says, whether you call me crazy or not, whether I got five minutes or five hours, here's what I want to tell you about him. The last verse says, then the king rose. And the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And listen to this. Verse 32, it says, And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. He says, this man could have been free. He's done nothing. Could have been free. Could have been free. After this, you know, Festus brought in his 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 Jewish advisor in Agrippa to say, "Hey, has he done anything wrong in your in your view in your perspective?" And he says, "Man, this man could have been free. The only reason he in jail is because he wanted to go to Caesar." But folks, why did Paul want to go to Caesar? Because God sent him to Caesar. <sighs> Do y'all get that? He could have been free, but because God was sending him somewhere, he stayed in bondage. Did y'all get that? He could have been free, but because God was sending him somewhere, he remained in bondage. What if you are exactly where you're supposed to be? Because God is seeking maximum glory in and through you. What if you're saying, this is not where I want to be? Why is my body like it is? Why is my family like they are? Why do I struggle like I struggle? Why out of all the temptations in the world, I got to fight with this one? Why? Why? Out of all the people making money 
in this world, why can't I make money? Why can't I have money like they make money? What if you are exactly where you're supposed to be? Because God is seeking maximum glory from you. What if you are exactly where you're supposed to be? So that you can see God's glory the way you're supposed to see it. What if you are exactly where you're supposed to be? Because there are Festuses and there are Agrippas and there are Bernices along your journey that need to hear the gospel declared with clarity and with boldness. See, sometimes the places that we ask to God to deliver us from could be the very places that God wants us to be. And I'm not undermining the fact that you should, you should pray. Pray. Pray for healing. Pray for relief. Pray for help. Pray for finances. But know that if you don't even get the help that you think that you need in the form of finances, in the form of healing, that you still have the help. That Paul was still bound in chains in prison, but he was still free in Jesus. He still had his help. And that that help will carry you wherever you are in order to get you exactly where God has called you to be in order for you to have maximum glory for him. In order to see maximum glory in him. And in order for you to reach the people that God has called you to reach. So just, in, so just say, Lord, listen, I don't like where I am right now. And I certainly desire for you to relieve me from this place. But should you keep me here, give me the strength to make your name, to glorify your name, and to exalt your name wherever I am.